Ask Luis Martinez what he does, and you won't always get the same response. There's the bare bones answer. My name is Luis Martinez, and I'm an assistant professor here at the Harris School. There's the in-depth answer. I work on the political economy of development, kind of the intersection between political science and economics. And political economy of development refers to the idea that political institutions and political factors are the key ingredient that affects development and underdevelopment. So, so we analyze political institutions, elections, governance uh, with an eye towards understanding how these institutions and these actors lead to progress and development or, or hinder development. And then there's what you might call the CSI answer. I would say that there's a connection between the two papers in their underlying motivation. So I believe that they can be both characterized as, as contributing to what has been known as forensic economics, which is this idea of trying to use data and statistical techniques to uncover uh, behavior that people would like to remain hidden. Professor Martinez is talking about two of his recent papers. Each deals with a very different subject, but each reveals something about the world that you might call sinister. Welcome back to Radio Harris. This month, we're talking to Professor Martinez about a couple of different ways in which he's used cold, hard data to expose things that people in power would prefer to cover up. Stay with us. Professor Martinez grew up in Colombia just a few years before Hugo Chavez came to power across the border in Venezuela. In a recent paper, he examined Chavez's relationship to left-wing insurgent groups in Colombia. These groups have been fighting the Colombian government since the 1960s. For his part, Chavez viewed the insurgent groups as potential allies, something that didn't sit well with Colombia, which accused Chavez of allowing the insurgents to take refuge in Venezuela. Chavez denied this, but a lot of people were pretty sure he was lying. People like Professor Martinez. What got me thinking about this was whether there was a way to use actual data on insurgent activity, on, say, the geography of the conflict, to, to look for a pattern that would be indicative of collaboration between the Venezuelan government and the insurgents. So Professor Martinez looked at where the insurgents carried out their attacks before, during, and after Chavez was in power. We know where the insurgents were carrying out attacks, and we can compare the intensity of the violence between places that are closer to the border with Venezuela and places that are farther away. And in particular, what we can do is we can examine whether the, the, the relative amount of violence between places close and far from the border changes after Chavez comes to power. The underlying idea here is that the, the Colombian insurgents, they do not use any 
long-range weaponry or, or, or any sophisticated tanks or helicopters or anything like that. So the bottom line is that if they want to attack a police station somewhere, they, they pretty much have to go all the way there. And so the idea was, well, if they are indeed hiding inside Venezuela, this should give them a strategic advantage in, ter in terms of their attacks, in terms of their attacking ability in places close to the border, but not so much in places farther away. And so the main finding of the paper is that indeed, up to the time when Chavez comes to power, the intensity of insurgent violence is pretty much identical in places close to the border and places far from the border. But as soon as Chavez comes to power, we start observing this interesting pattern where the amount of violence near the border shoots up and remains high and constant throughout the, the Chavez uh, administration. This finding applies to other international conflicts as well, Professor Martinez says. Uh, for instance, there were Palestinian rebels hiding in Lebanon, which led Israel eventually to attack in the, in the early 1980s. Uh, there was also uh, former combatants from Rwanda uh, hiding in what, what at the time was Syria, and they were being supported by Mobutu, and that eventually led to, to the invasion and to the first Congo war. More than half, say 55 or 60 percent of all insurgent groups that we have that we know to have existed since the end of the Second World War have received some type of foreign support. These civil conflicts and potentially civil wars are to some extent fueled by foreign powers that have an interest in keeping the conflict going and that provide support to one of the parties, whether that is a safe haven in their territory if it's a neighboring country or funding weaponry diplomatic support. You can imagine the, a whole range of things. The moral of the story? This type of foreign support does lead to sharp increases in the intensity of violence. And in fact, some of the, of the additional results in the paper show that these places exhibit uh, lower levels of tax collection, lower levels of local public good provision, lower levels of education. As you can imagine, as these areas start becoming war-torn, it is the civilian population who bears mo most of the cost. mystery Professor Martinez has uncovered recently. It too has to do with big governments and big secrets. And it hinges on one simple fact. Governments of all types, democracies, dictatorships, what have you, are motivated to exaggerate how well their economies are doing. They all want to do this. What Professor Martinez wanted to find out was, what type of governments actually do it and get away with it? Now, the key question that the paper tries to tackle is whether the checks and balances provided by democracy are able to constrain the government's ability to manipulate information. So you can imagine that in a well-functioning democracy, in a healthy democracy, you have the opposition in the legislature asking questions, 
you have the media scrutinizing the numbers, you have the judiciary potentially prosecuting any hint of wrongdoing, you have nowadays freedom of information requests that, that can be used all by, by regular civilians to ask for information and to look at the numbers. And the idea is that as we look at increasingly authoritarian regimes, we find that many of these features become less prevalent or are in, or are in fact largely absent. A very extreme example, unfortunately, you have the population census of the Soviet Union of the late 1930s, 36 or 37, where the numbers come in and they show that population has not grown as much as had been expected. The reason being, of course, that people had been starving to death for several years before that. Now, what does Stalin do? He accuses all the statisticians of treason, has them arrested and shot, and brings in a new team that produces numbers more to his liking. Now, there are, of course, less extreme examples, just to mention one, uh, the, the trustworthiness of Chinese official economic statistics has been put in question for the last 10 or 20 years. And you can find people saying, no, the numbers are correct. Other people saying the numbers are absolutely false. Given examples like these, Professor Martinez suspected that democratic governments would be less likely to exaggerate the health of their economies, and dictatorships would be more likely to do so. To find out if he was right, he looked at two things. First, he examined the GDPs of 179 countries. GDPs, of course, are mostly self-reported by national governments. And second, he looked at the level of nighttime lighting given off in each country, as recorded by satellites in space. That might sound a little odd, but it's been proven. Nighttime lights have been shown to be a reliable indicator of economic activity. When economies grow, countries literally light up. The specific question that I ask in the paper is whether we observe that the same amount of growth in nighttime lights translates into systematically different amounts of GDP growth as we look at more and more authoritarian regimes. In particular, what I thought at the beginning of the project was it would be quite suspicious if we were to find that the same amount of growth in lights translates into systematically larger amounts of GDP growth as we look at more, at more repressive, more authoritarian governments. And in fact, that's what the data shows, that the, the nightlight's elasticity of GDP is significantly larger in, in authoritarian regimes. Specifically, he calculated that the countries with the most authoritarian governments inflated their GDP growth rates by a factor of as much as 1.3. You might be thinking, wait a minute, are we sure that those governments are inflating their GDPs on purpose? Couldn't there be other explanations? In, in some very poor places, for instance, in sub-Saharan Africa, the state of the statistical agencies is not that good. And so the numbers, the estimates that they're producing are extremely wild guesses. So another concern could be, well, maybe it's just that these authoritarian regimes invest less in their statistical agencies and there's more guesswork involved in the production of the estimates. So, so I would say that besides the main result, the next step in the study was to try to rule out all of these alternative explanations. Uh, and indeed, the data shows that none of these alternative explanations 
are are able to to explain away this result. So it's not about authoritarian regimes or or autocratic countries being more agricultural or more industrial. It's not about them having larger governments. It's not about them having weaker statistical agencies. It seems to be about the type of political institution that is in place. And 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 in that regard, I would say that the the third part of the paper has to do with trying to zoom in and trying to understand what is exactly that is going on. And in this regard, I do find that the type of political institution that we expect to affect uh, the, the power of the executive to manipulate information does play an important role. So for the same level of autocracy, according to one of these classifications, places that do not have an elected legislature seem to exaggerate GDP more, Places that do not have a national constitutional court seem to exaggerate GDP more. Places that do not have an independent central bank seem to exaggerate GDP more. So indeed, the evidence does point to uh, the, the system of checks and balances, the system of economic, political, and judicial institutions as being this important factor that affects allows or constrains the government's ability to exaggerate economic growth. So dictators are systematically manipulating their GDPs. That obviously has big implications for resource allocation, political accountability, and economic research. But Professor Martinez says the paper has another implication too. Perhaps this is what I find most interesting, is that I feel that it brings to light the manipulation of information as a systematic feature, a systematic trait of authoritarian regimes. Uh, and there are plenty of, of historical examples. So, for instance, there's a nice book documenting the manipulation of photography and art in Stalinist Russia. So Stalin was drawn into pictures of historical episodes when he was never there, but also people were being erased out of pictures as they fell out of favor with the regime. Uh, there's some interesting research nowadays looking at the way in which the Communist Party in China attempts to both censor and control the type of information that people access, say, over the internet, but also how it fabricates, for instance, social media content. And so, so I would say that it is only recently that we've been able to do research and to start understanding better this manipulation of information, which I would describe again as, as a, perhaps a, a fundamental, a, a systematic feature of authoritarian regimes. And I feel that this study, even though it focuses on, on a very specific topic, which is manipulation of economic growth statistics, is indicative of this more wider, more systematic pattern. Make sure you don't miss an episode of Radio Harris. Subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud. And please check out our other podcast, Day One, which features students, alumni, and faculty using the Harris approach to make an impact in the world from their very first day at Harris and years beyond. That's it for today. This episode of Radio Harris was produced by me, Ann Ford.